Hi, my name is Martin Purnell, and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those of the disillusioned. This podcast series is to encourage via conversation and not necessarily change your mind prior to listening. You can contact us as well by email ogc at accessradio.biz and check out our Facebook page, Off Grid Christianity, and we have our own website now, offgridchristianity.co.uk. So our guest today, who is he? Well, he was interviewed by me over 20 years ago when the internet was fairly new and he had just launched a new website called Ship of Fools. Prior to this venture, our guest was editor for Buzz magazine before starting a new career in public relations consultancy. Our guest even released a solo album on Kingsway Records produced by Paul Field and Les Moore with the imaginative title Waiting for Goddard. He is also the author of Rattles and Rosettes, our guest these days promotes the Christian Resources Exhibition. So, having gained a theology degree, what did he want to achieve for God? Why were some of his lyrics considered controversial by the media? And I quote, Refreshingly honest, if a little uncomfortable, to hear. What was wrong with the person's hearing? Or did it mean the sound mix was bad? Or that he couldn't sing? <laughs> we better find out. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to Off Group Christianity after all these years, Steve Goddard. Steve, thank you for joining us today. How are you, good sir? I'm fine, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's crack on with uh, the five questions, if that's right. But before we do that, where are we speaking to you from today, sir? From St Helens, uh, which is in Lancashire, better known for, uh, well, indeed, glass and rugby yeah. rather than theology. Yeah, yeah. But uh, here I am between Liverpool and Manchester, and I've been here over 30 years. Wow. Well, let's go for it, sir. Question number one, if you could invite anybody alive or dead, for a meal round at your place and you could ask him questions, who would it be? John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And many people will know that name somehow. <laughs> it's probably, to me, the biggest event of my early life. Perhaps the one I remember most of all. People know where they were when they heard yes. Kennedy had been assassinated. I was 10. I was round at my Auntie Betty's and I, I was just shocked. And I would like to sit down with JFK and ask him about the history of that time, of what he expected and hoped to do before the assassination. And of course, I would like to have in the same room Lee Harvey Oswald, <laughs> who was assassinated if I, if I was allowed two people. Go for it. To find out exactly whether he had anything to do with it. My personal belief is he didn't. And to therefore kind of look at the whole issue of what happened as a result of the fact that JFK was assassinated. There's a, a, an argument to say that the Vietnam War would never have happened. If the Vietnam War hadn't happened, 60,000 American soldiers wouldn't have died. Yeah. Okay, you could say another problem might have resulted. Who knows? But I think that JFK is an, an interesting bloke from the point of view of not just um, his politics, but of course he had there was dubious morality issues involved with JFK and a personal factor. But... But this whole idea of what his dream was, really, and we lost something. We lost something massive. Democracies lost something massive when JFK was assassinated. I don't think we've really recovered from it. No. 22nd of November 1963. I won't bore you to death because you've really nailed on to one of my favourite subjects of all time. And every Christmas, uh, my mate's back in England. Obviously, it costs too much to fly over in my private jet to see them. So for the past 15 years, we do an awards ceremony. It's very silly, very banal, but it's a good laugh. And uh, one of the awards goes to our favourite TV show of the year. And mine goes to Channel 5 for showing a programme in that week. Because obviously it was the 60th anniversary of The Awful yeah. Killing. And it was a Channel 5 documentary about JFK, the assassination, but from Parkins Hospital point of view. The medics that were working there, the anaesthetists, the surgeons, what actually happened? Well, of course, that the, the doctors there were neutral, but they just were trying to revive him. They were yeah. trying to. So what they they said what they saw. It was he was then the body was then taken to Bethesda to uh, where was the official autopsy, uh, which should, was illegal because it should have been done in Dallas. Yeah. But the, the once the military and once the the deep state got hold of it and uh, the, the official autopsy. It's nothing is not recognizable from what those original doctors saw. Yes. And that is the real start of the problem. We we could, I'm sure, talk endlessly about that. But it is the ramifications of that that uh, intrigue me as to what the way we now view the society, the way we view institutions, the way we, this conspiracy theory concept 
the concept of conspiracy theory didn't exist no. before the, the assassination of JFK. And of course, the question is, well, why did they want to cover it up in the first place? Exactly. Why? Exactly. Well, that's all the time we've got today for our podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but as I say, we could, we could go on and on about this subject. Question two. Who is your favourite biblical character or favourite biblical story or favourite parable, please, sir? One of my favourite characters, but I won't, this isn't my choice, is Eutychus, was the young lad who fell out of the window when Paul was preaching a particularly long sermon. Yes. How many of us have actually fallen asleep during sermons? <laughs> we haven't fallen out of windows. Not yet. Uh, fortunately, he was revived. Parables, I find the parables the most interesting part of, of the Bible, really, because there, there's an interpretation we have to put into parables. Jesus, the artist, and the way that he forces us into thinking through our implications of our lives through parables is wonderful. Yeah. But the verse that means most to me is a verse which um, from Luke uh, chapter 22, when uh, Jesus is addressing Simon. And it was a verse which I opened the Bible at when I was struggling about going to Bible college. All right. About three days to go. And I, I kind of virtually lost my faith. And I thought, I'm not going. Wow. Uh, this is right. Uh, you know, I, I can't do this. And it was the fear, if you like, that had, had come to me. And I found this incredible verse when Jesus says to Simon, 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 Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. And in that verse was almost like a commission to me. The idea that Jesus knew the person in front of him in, in terms of Simon here, but that he knew that, that when your faith, I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And this idea of not if you turn again, but when you have turned again. And here's your commission, strengthen your brethren. And that verse I took with me in the floods of tears into studying theology uh, 50 years ago this year. Wow. So um, it was quite a moment for me. And and in a way, everything I've done since then, somehow or other has come back to that verse, uh, including now the running and owning of the Christian Resources Exhibition. Wow. Tell me, where's that verse again, please? Luke 2, 22, verse 32. Just read that again. That's very powerful. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. I think that's going to be encouraging for many people listening today who feel like disillusioned or whatever. Hold on to that verse. Thank you. Question three. If you were prime minister for the day, Steve, and could change any law or impose a new law, what would it be? Well, I think I'm talking right up to date now, and I'm thinking about the women against state pension inequality. Ooh. I mean, the whole of the WASPy women who've been fighting for thousands upon thousands of women who were blindsided by this removal of this state pension age from 60 to 66. Yeah. You know, six years have just gone when they've been paying in for years and years and years on the understanding that they would receive that state pension at 60. And now I've had to wait six years uh, longer. I know people who have really struggled. Their argument is that it's plunged tens of thousands of people into poverty. Yeah. As a result. And I've seen that in some people still working when they shouldn't be, just because they have to. I would change that law. I know, controversial it may be, but I believe that we're, that um, it's something that, that could affect the well-being of an awful lot of people. Wow. You sounded just like a politician there as well. <laughs> I could see you on your soapbox on that one. Absolutely. That's a very good point. Thank you. Question four, outside of family events, Steve, what has been your most enjoyable day out so far? January 2015, a football match between Burnley and Crystal Palace. Okay. Now, that's not the most exciting of fixtures if you're a football fan. I accept. Well, no, it's Burnley versus Bristol City. I've been to Turf Moor many a times. <laughs> <laughs> I love Turf Moor because the two clubs were the subject of my novel, Rattles and Rosettes, right. which you mentioned, where I took two fans, fictitiously, uh, one in 1914, Burnley fan, 16 years old, a minor, 
And I looked at his trip, as it were, as, as a Burnley fan, as Burnley went to the FA Cup for the first time at the old Crystal Palace. Yes. Many people won't know that the Crystal Palace uh, was the venue for 20 FA Cup finals before Wembley was built. 1909, Bristol City, Manchester United, FA Cup final. Thank you. We lost 1-0. And I bet you've seen pictures of it. Yes. And I bet you've seen pictures of men up trees. Yes. Looking down. I mean, we're talking about huge crowds yes. coming um, from all over. I found these pictures fascinating, coming originally from the Croydon area and being a Palace fan. But to see these pictures, the idea, the FA Cup, the famous old cup, and these people coming from all over the country, yeah. sometimes horning their sideboards, horning their double beds in order to raise the money to down to the Crystal Palace yeah. to see their, their first time they'd ever been to London. The only time many ever were able to afford to go to London to see their team play. Yes. I got fascinated by this. And I, so I created the idea of a Burnley fan on a cup run to the, the final and compared it with a character in 2010 as a Palace fan, the club struggling, a completely different character, 23 years old, educated to useless degree level and passionate only about one thing, football. Both these fans are passionate about it, but the cultural context of where they are is completely different. And so I was able to compare religious situations, social situation, the class, the different class system, and ended up by bringing the two stories together at the end of the novel. So the book was published and it got found by the head guys at Crystal Palace, uh, Steve Parrish and Steve right. Brower, who owned Palace at the time. Yeah. And ever since then, I've been invited to the Burnley versus Palace games at Turf Moor and uh, once or twice down at Selhurst as well. And so the the most exciting day was the first time, the first game I went to at Burnley on January, uh, whatever it was, in 2015, when I sat with them in the director's box and was kind of fated just having written this novel and looked after royally. Oh, wow. And and we went 2-0 down, Palace went 2-0 down and fought back and won 3-2 in the last few minutes. And, I mean, what a day. You, you just can't imagine that that would happen as good as that. Oh, I can. I've been there. I just loved that moment. And it was inconsequential in the long, long run in terms of the season, but a fantastic memory. There are lots of people saying football. Nah. When you've gone to Mansfield Town on a windswept February Saturday and your team are 4-2 down with three minutes to go... You then get a penalty, and then an extra time, you then win 5-4, which is what we did. I would have walked home. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. It's wonderful. Those moments, because they happen so rarely. But every now and then, it's it's almost a drug. You keep feeding it just for that one moment. Yes. Like a gambler. You know, he keeps giving them, just in case he might win big. That's a great answer. Yes. Fantastic. I'm really pleased for you and that you won. Question five. What has been your most embarrassing moment to date, please, Steve? The moment that I failed my O-levels through lack of work and had to sit in the headmaster's study and make a decision whether to stay at the school I'd been in, uh, I was in, the grammar school, and go down a year and do it all over again. And the most embarrassing moment was, A, doing making that decision in front of him, but B, walking into that class, 5A, having obviously failed and sitting in the front row with one other bloke who also had a problem and joined me and sitting there for the morning thinking all my friends were in the sixth form and I was going to go through all of it all over again for a year. And I was so embarrassed because I, I walked in an obvious failure. You know, 35 lads, this is all, all boys school, you know. And also the embarrassment of of realising that the, the, the next assembly, seeing these lads that had been the failures at, at 11 plus, who went to a secondary modern school and therefore were written off. And I was one of the success of 11 plus. And to watch these lads who'd made it through much more difficult situation in, in the local yeah. secondary modern going into the sixth form. Yeah, yeah. And that, that was so embarrassing. 
But the failure resulted in a whole different mindset after that for me. I had to go through that. Why? I had to go through Why? Because I, I think that at that point, I didn't take life seriously enough. I just didn't take the situation seriously enough. And I'd become complacent, I think. And I thought I could scrape through, yeah. you know. I'd just do enough to get by. And I didn't do enough. And so from then on, my life changed. And I think that, you know, there was definitely a Christian element about it. But it was all about my making a decision to to get on with life, really, for the first time. And I'd been protected from that somehow yes. um, by by just about getting through, you know. I'm sure people listening today can identify with that. And one thing I would say from my life to date is a, a classic quote from, and it's either Mark Twain or Winston Churchill. This is Winston Churchill. And that is, uh, never give up, never, never, never. That was yeah. the total sum of his speech. And he sat down at his school. They were expecting like a half-hour speech yeah. <laughs> from his greatest orator. And that's what he said. And it's the same thing with you. Yeah. You could have done something about it, or you might not have done something about it, but you decided to do swallow pride and everything else like that. No, I, I totally get that. Thank you for showing that. Yeah. Thank you. Well, let's move on then, Steve, if that's okay. After all that, from 5A, why do you then want to go study theology? I just found the words. Music was a big, a massive part of my background. My family is musical. I had an uncle who ran six different bands wow. in the Croydon area. I never met him, but he, he was clearly a very motivated. And I found that the music, almost like I found a much closer relationship with uh, music that spoke of eternity. You know, there was a, an exciting move in the yes. 60s where Christian bands were beginning to come together and they were uh, speaking of religious things that, and spiritual things that made sense to me. And I became excited by the Jesus movement in America. That interested me and intrigued me. This was not just the the rather po-faced Anglicanism yeah. that I'd been brought up in. I'd been a choir boy and I'd gone through. I, mean, I came from a family of God-botherers. And it sort of, you know, that didn't mean anything greatly to me. But I then went to um, the Billy Graham Crusades in 1966-67 in London and my mum and dad were in the choir, uh, the 2,000-strong choir. And I, <laughs> I felt for the first time, saw religion as theatre. This idea that Billy Graham was, you know, that first night in 66, he was going to call people forward for yeah. conversion. This, nobody, this won't happen. Nobody's going to go forward. You don't do this in Britain. This doesn't happen. I was probably 13, 12, 13 at the time. And suddenly all these people started to walk forward to the front. And this was pure theatre. It was astonishing. And it touched me. But I remember most of all, listening to, uh, sitting there, and, and a, a black woman came up to sing. And she was in her 60s. And her name was Ethel Waters. Okay. And she was a famous, famous singer from America. I knew no, nothing of her. Oh, me. And she started to sing this, <laughs> this spiritual in a style that was, oh, it was beautiful. Somebody bigger than you and I was the song. It touched me at a real deep level. And I realised that, that all of these things combined into an emotional thing. And I started to read the scriptures again for the first time as simply Jesus almost, rather than all the superstructure of religion. What was Jesus actually saying to me through these words in the Bible, and it became fundamental to me and exciting and revolutionary, and all the kind of turning over of the tables almost. Yeah, the idea of Jesus being that kind of revolutionary rather than the rather stiff, do the right thing type of Jesus that I've been had been preached to me for years, and that became exciting to me dovetail with the music, dovetail with people who were singing. And I, I came across Buzz magazine and read it as a, as a hunter. And I, the moment I read it, I thought, this, these guys understand me, you know, my culture. And I am going to write for this magazine one day. Wow. Just, just like almost given to me. Yeah, yeah. What I didn't expect was to end up as editor. That was never in my mind. I didn't ever have that belief, self-belief or anything. But I thought I will be connected with this magazine in some way because these guys are talking my language. And as time went on, 
I became quite excited about things, went to study estate management at Oxford Polytechnic, which was utterly boring. And because it was so boring, it was like, okay, what are you going to do now? Okay, uh, you've been told to get on and do something in this world of of the church. And I had to come, come to terms with, I didn't know what it was going to be, but I had to go somewhere and study. And I, through some fantastic people, they directed me to the London Barber College and now the London School of Theology. And that was three wonderful, fantastic, exciting years of, believe it or not, studying Hebrew and Greek and church history and historical theology, which I never, ever expected to no. be to do. But as Lennon, John Lennon sang in the song Beautiful Boy, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. Very good. I remember for his son, Sean, if I remember rightly. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Of Double Fantasy album. There you go. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Two musos getting together. Very sad. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so there you were. And you then went to British Youth for Christ. What happened? Yeah. Came out of uh, LBC, as was, and uh, I recorded uh, my own album uh, of songs, Waiting for Goddard and uh, joined up with British Youth for Christ, having spent quite a lot of time over in Holland with um, Youth for Christ in Holland and touring coffee bars and uh, on an evangelistic sort of thing. Yeah. whole summer spent in coffee bars in Holland. What was that like? Oh, wonderful. Absolutely fantastic. And it was like the 60s, in, in sort of mid-70s now, but you know the idea of coffee bars out and, and street in the middle of um, town centres and putting up marquees and and just kind of the folky sort of folk rock feel of yeah. proceedings. It was great. We went from town to town, a group of us, and um, and it was fundamental to me sort of becoming a professional musician for three or four years and recording the album and just using some gifts that I had of communication in the right and a positive way. Wow. Well, I just say at the top end that quote, uh, and I'll read, <laughs> I'll read it again. Refreshingly honest, if a little uncomfortable to hear. Yes, I, I mean, I, I always felt that the, the lyrically, most Christian songs I heard failed to talk about the sort of average Christian life, you know, Christian day, you know, the things that bother you the things that d disturb you about some church kind of culture. So one of the songs that I wrote was called Child of My Time, which looks at the way that a young lad goes to a, a revival meeting, if you like, to a, a an evangelistic uh, event yes. and gets converted. And almost that's like usually the songs end at that that point. You know, it's the wonderful, glorious moment of of change. I was more bothered about what happened to him now you know, what happens after his conversion. So I yeah. created the story of a, of a kid who goes to church and finds that what he's heard in that uh, address, which has touched him hugely, it doesn't connect with the church culture, which he's expected now to become part of. And so it was the idea of him being caught between the devil and the C of E was the kind of payoff line on that. Uh, and so uh, I was writing songs that were uh, trying to, interpret a, a number of different areas of life you know and one another song called propaganda which i talked about the fact that was i just a hired musician to to peddle a way of life much uh, politically and when what was different between me now uh, singing about this kind of way of life with anybody singing about being a member of the national front or the ira or something yeah yeah, yeah. You know, when I was there to to kind of gear it up and then somebody come in and preach to everybody and convert them. And uh, so there was uncomfortable things. But then I think that was it, it was also devotional songs, too. So people did respond to what I was trying to do because they felt they were with me in, in that sort of way. Yeah. And I suppose I like to tell stories and the telling of stories has become part of of what I've gone on to do rather than just to knock out songs on a keyboard or a guitar. I want to throw the script out, if that's all right, and go off-piste, if that's okay. Of course. I think the reason why I'm saying that is that talking about yourself in the 1970s, we fast-forward 50 years, which makes you at least in your late 40s now. <laughs> 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 
He says, being polite. And I had the privilege of interviewing the other week Wayne Drain from America, who was, uh, is very big over in America for Christian worship and stuff. And he talked about the Jesus movement. So have a listen to that, please. Episode 70. Yes. Sir. You'll hear more about it. But looking back on it from your point of view, all those years later, here's a man writing a song about a boy going in to church and wanting to, to challenge the status quo. Other rock bands also available. And looking for it now, what have you learnt about your Christian walk and your Christian faith? And what would you say to that boy that you're writing about in 1970s? That's a good question. I would say certainly things have uh, loosened up. I think there's uh, uh, church is much more accessible. I think there is a, a less of that kind of stiff upper lip Christianity that was there at the time. And so I'm excited about the fact that there is a looser sort of view and there is an awful lot of places that are a lot more accessible. I'm not sure, from my point of view, I suppose I would would say that from my angle, I've learnt that I haven't got the answers to the questions. What I've developed over the years, I hope, is my questions are deeper what I mean by that is that I've I've stopped trying to find the answer to everything. I've given up sort of wrestling with certain things. Why? Because I believe that Jesus actually didn't give us the answers. He asked questions all the time. I mean, there's a brilliant book by Conrad Gempf, which I recommend, called Jesus Asked. And he looks at the reasons why or looks at them. I think there's over 80 questions Jesus asks in the course of the Gospels. And, and all the time he is asking about me, you know, he's asking about the person in front of him, the basis for their thinking rather than the answers to your life. You must find the answer to your life your way. There's a de democracy about that as well rather than an autocratic thing going on here. But Jesus does an awful lot more in terms of the parables I mentioned earlier. He invites us to find for ourselves what this parable means to us in this situation, almost existentially. So what has changed for me is that I don't expect to find the answer this side of eternity. I do expect and have found my questions to be a lot, lot better and my a view of life to be less dogmatic, although there's still a dogma there, it's, it's kind of fuzzier on the edges. And that, I think, has been better for me in terms of, of my relationships with other people. Okay. I was in Belfast, won't say why, but I was texting my wife and I was also texting my friend. My friend wrote back saying that, please pray for my daughter, who's well in her early 20s now. The reason why I'm saying this is that if you met her 10, 12 years ago, you would have thought she is the most shining light to come out of this church over here. What she was writing about Jesus, how she was writing about Jesus was phenomenal. It really was. She doesn't want to know now. So what would you say to people listening today who've got children, nephews, nieces, just like my friend whose daughter's like this at the moment? What would you say to the parents and also to the young lady might happen to be listening? Well, I think we're all on a journey. You know, we're all on a, some form of pilgrimage. Yeah. And there are different spots on the way. The, the scenery changes. Things affect us. Different people come into our lives. We're all on that journey. And, and I'm not, I wouldn't be too discouraged. It's easy to say, but I think you have to do it. You have to surrender them into the hands of God. You have to leave them to find their way that is the beauty of of the gospel actually because jesus he, he never wrote anything down he entrusted the entire message the incarnation was entrusted in the hands of these disciples who hadn't got a clue hardly what was going on at the time so if jesus was prepared to trust the disciples with this massive message can we not entrust our loved ones into the hands of God to do with them what he sees fit and to take them on that journey and see them through to the end? If we don't have that sense, then then we we don't have faith. And that is, to me, faith is, is letting go as much as it is loving. Wow. 
maybe 30, 40 years ago in your church, we would have had like a, a fire brimstone and treacle type sermon whereby it'd be, well, that's it, they're damned to hell, they're not going to be this or that. But you're not, you're turning it around and saying, no, we've still got to love them. We've still got to pray for them, we've still got to carry on. Fantastic. And they've got to find their way, you know, too. Yeah. The way that they find their way will not be the way that we hope they'll find it. The, the chances are it'll be another way round. And that's why I think we've got to, to ease back at times. I went through all those sermons I, as a kid, so I know what, what, uh, what that's all about. And we, we've seen with our own family at times, uh, and, and not going into detail, yeah. you know, we've seen those kind of meanderings going on and then gradually the coming back. And I believe, I believe in that. Yeah, and no doubt by going on their journey, they're going to be stronger for their faith as well because they're actually doing it in their time and in yeah. their own strength. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mentioned earlier on, Ship of Fools, when it came out all those years ago, for me, it was like a breath of fresh air. And yes, I'd love to stuck a card into a gift box at the end saying, you know, you were visited by me. And this is what I thought your sermon. <laughs> it was great. It was a breath of fresh air. Looking back at it now, what would you have done? differently or maybe not well let me explain what it was to people who have no idea what ship of fools is i mean yeah, it was please. a kind of reaction again against the, the religiosity of church culture and the the gung-ho and the po-faced church life that we we still faced that we created coming up to 30 years ago that we created the website shipoffools.com still there and uh, but it had come from a magazine originally a print magazine which simon jenkins dreamed up. Simon was a, a fellow theological student of mine with me at the London Bible College. And uh, we created, a, he, he, it was his idea, not mine, but he wanted to see a, a magazine that brought some of these ideas together and titled by another colleague of ours, a theological friend, uh, Ewan Russell Jones, who called it the Magazine of Christian Unrest. That was his title. It was so wonderful that we dubbed it that. And, and it was really asking questions, not to say that faith is meaningless. What we were asking was, is some of the culture of faith meaningless? Is some of the superstructure that we created around this elemental faith worth it or not? And when we launched the website in 97, 98, I think it was, I'd been working on a, a exhibition, the public relations work for an ex, on the market research industry and mystery shopper was one of the areas which the exhibition was handling as an issue, obviously, that we know about. And it was a play on words originally. I thought a mystery shopper, mystery worshipper was so close. We got to send out mystery worshippers to do churches as a kind of review. So, and this has just gone on for years and years and thousands of reviews later from Toronto to Turin, there are reviews of churches which people go to. Uh, you've got to go to a church where you've never been to before, preferably a denomination that isn't yours, and you review that church. How long was the sermon? How hard was the pew? All the things that really matter from that church, like, <laughs> you know, the detail. Uh, and, of course, we had willing volunteers all around the world, yeah. literally, to go and do it. That was part of what we did. And also Gadgets for God was another favourite section where we looked things for things that were being sold in the name of God. Uh, some of them were send-ups, but uh, many of them were, again, gung-ho type of things that people, evangelistic aids, like soles of, of these shoes where you had Jesus loves you printed in the sole. So you could walk along the beach and you could be telling people Jesus loves you every step of your way. You know, they were the Virgin Mary fridge magnet set. Yes, that you could put on. It, it, we found hundreds and hundreds of wonderful items and critiqued them. So, uh, ship of falls, and then and then a community cre was created, and uh, we now almost take these communities as for granted uh, in across all sorts of different areas of life. But at that time, we had no idea what was really just a kind of a glorified at the time magazine on online rather than in print actually began to build a community around it and people wanted to put their own stuff in and user-generated content was a whole new concept at mm. the time but this community built from nowhere into thousands of people who um, joined in on bulletin boards 
and created their own subjects for discussion and onward and upward. It was unbelievable. And it was at the point when the web was taking off massively anyway. And it, it just became so exciting. So I have to give credit to Simon, uh, Simon Jenkins for without him, it would never have happened. And he is a phenomenal achievement in my in my opinion. Yeah, well, it was certainly talking my language and flying the flag for me. Because that's the time when we had like the dot com brigade, whereby if you even had a half off silly idea website, you might be offered quite a lot of money for it. Did anyone come to you and say, gee, we love this. We need to buy the website from you. No, I don't think anybody ever, ever thought through uh, that this could be a commercial factor. Uh, we uh, declined to even approach it in that way, too. And um, we had an opportunity to take funding at one point many, many years ago. But we just felt that we would be stepping into a whole different ball game with advertising. I mean, long term, it would have survived probably in terms it is still there, but it you know it could have developed hugely with yes. with income, with a regular income. But we just felt that we would be going potentially down the same line that so many other magazines or outlets we were in danger of not being able to critique anymore because we were now part of the uh, of the institution yes. the commercial institution and we wanted to avoid that and i think that's why we've never got any bigger because you know you need at some point you reach a point where are we going to expand and take the world on or are we going to stay a little niche and we stay a little niche why I think for that reason, I think we there was a purity angle about it. We didn't feel we could critique things when we were part of it. We couldn't critique the commercial aspects of, of Christianity and the um, a lot of the fundraising and the begging letters and all the stuff that goes on. Uh, we couldn't critique that and do it ourselves. As you know, I mean, we met 30 years ago, and so it's, it's great that our paths have come back again, even if it's just for today. But one thing that I've seen, and it really hurts me at times, is that people can be in Christian ministry, and eventually there is this decision whereby do they continue walking the fine line, whereby they're trusting God for the money to come in, whatever, or do they wait for a big business to come in? And I've seen it time and time again, whereby I think, no, we'll go big business. And what I think happens is that instead of putting God first, you're actually putting money first. And then God, what do you think? Oh, it's easy to do. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I, I'm not fully out of this scene in the sense that uh, I worked in public relations for years as a hired hand, promoted all sorts of organisations and kept body and soul together. But, you know, several years ago, I had the opportunity to purchase the Christian Resources Exhibition, which the Bible Society at the time had decided they didn't want to carry on with. And they were either going to close it down or sell it. And then we had to, my wife and I had to make a decision as to whether we wanted to take it on ourselves because nobody else showed any, no, nobody followed through. Yes. There were a number of people showed interest, nobody followed through. We were prepared to follow through. So while I kind of say, yes, the commercialism is a, a problem for Christianity, the commercialism on the other side is the moment that you take something on, you're taking on a responsibility. Yeah. And so the moment that we bought the exhibition, um, we had to basically fund it ourselves and we've had to make a go of it without a fairy godmother to bail us out. So, you know, we, we've deliberately kept ourselves independent of any denomination. We've kept the exhibition as free from supervision in terms of that would affect us in uh, commercially and theologically even. It's a very hard thing to do. In fact, the weird thing is we bought the exhibition in 2016. Four days after my wife and I bought it, I was offered by a secular exhibition company. They wanted to buy it from me. Wow. And to keep me on board as well as the figurehead. But they would own it. They would run it and they would pay me a really good salary. And therefore, this looked like the perfect solution. Yeah. And I went home and I was in a bit of a daze because I didn't expect this. But I thought, no, the truth is we are responsible for this. We have been given this opportunity. We have to take the risk commercially, too, with this. And because if I had sold out, it would have been in the hands of people that didn't really understand the church. They didn't understand the vagaries. 
they didn't understand the innuendos, the all the niche issues that you need to know about yeah, yeah. in the Christian world and relationships that you have to build and people trust you, the element of trust. I mean, I felt like I'd been led up to the, you know, I looked over all the all the countries of the world and been offered this if I would just bow the knee. You know what I mean? Oh, I do. And it was a big, big moment. Believe me, I've been a freelance all my life. I'd never been able to have that kind of wonderful security that you get when you work for a, an employer that pays well. And suddenly I was in a position by almost like surprised after four days having made this big decision to own, uh, own the exhibition, to have somebody buy it out and keep me on was very tempting. But I'm glad I didn't because as a result, even though we've had some very difficult times in the last few years, you know, we've been able to control the agenda. For those that are saying Christian Resources Exhibition, what's it all about? What's it all about, Steve? It's about a sort of best described as an ideal church show. It's a trade show for churches. If people, particularly church leaders and officers who are responsible for churches in some way, need to find suppliers, need to find people who can, uh, expertise really, to do all the things, the practical things from from the dry rot uh, in churches to the roof, anything underneath the roof of the church that is functioning, we try to exhibit answers to those problems, including the roof itself. Yeah. So we're very practical. You know, everything from the restocking of, uh, recycling of pews to buying in new chairs to the coffee with its fair trade to communion wine to new resources for Sunday schools. Anything at all that is happening underneath the roof of that church, we like to deal with. And of course, technology has played a big part recently um, in terms of change. So uh, when it comes to fundraising, when it comes to music, um, when it comes to worship and teaching, the, all the resources we, we try to cover. We will run one exhibition this year in Milton Keynes in October, uh, a two-day exhibition. So I come back to that original point mm. 50 years ago yeah. and that verse. Yes. Uh, remember what, what it was again? Wasn't it Luke 22? That's it. Luke 22, verse 23, I think it is, if I remember rightly. When you have turned again... Last three words, strengthen your brethren. And I was given an opportunity after all these years to run an exhibition to strengthen the churches, the strengthen your brethren. Wow. It's kind of amazing when I think of how naive I was at 20 and I would never have dreamed that that would be the outworking of that, yeah. of that call. Yeah. Christian's resource exhibition. If I ever have to run my autobiography, it actually plays a, a very big part in my life. 1994, having obeyed God and resigned from a job because he told me to, I ended up eventually one day at the CRE when it was at Sandown Racecourse. Sandown Park, yeah. I went there and I knew that MAF, Mission Aviation Fellowship, was going to be there. And I thought, well, this is it. I'm not married yet. I can give my life to the MAF. I can learn how to fly. Can't cost that much. I go through the door at half past 10 and at 20 to 11, I was on the way out because I go up to MAF and I said, this is who I am. What have I got to do? He said, well, first of all, you've got to get a pilot's license. I said, yeah, that's not a problem. I know it's about 6,000. I can use my redundancy money to pay for that. Ah, oh, yes, but that's the start of it. I said, what do you mean? Oh, well, you've got to then get your commercial pilot's license. And I go, well, that can't be an issue really, can it? How much is that? He said, well, in the UK, it's about £70,000, but you can do it cheaper in America for £40,000. Bye. <laughs> and that was the end of my MAF career, courtesy of CRE. That's a great story. I love those stories. <laughs> because actually, an awful lot of people have a more positive experience and do discover things that they bump into people or they, they just walk in with one idea and come out with another. Yeah. Like I said, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. Yes. And CRE is the great opportunity to have your wonderful idealism driven out of you or a new idealism brought in and developed. And the thing is, is that from day one of my life, ever since I could walk, speak, whatever, all I ever wanted to be was a radio presenter. That was it. If anyone's from MAF listening, thinking, oh, we missed a treat here. 
Uh, no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and B, if I'd only waited a bit longer, which I duly did, you know, I, I ended up in Christian Radio. Brilliant. Brilliant. So that's great. I've got a quote from you, by the way, that I'd like to uh, throw at you, see what you think. And I can't remember where I got it from, but it is, is from your good self. I pray for the ability to understand and come to terms with the situation I'm in rather than trying to change it. Absolutely. I'll say that again because it sums up very nicely what I think what we've been talking about. Mm. I pray for the ability to understand and come to terms with the situation I'm in rather than trying to change it. Why do you say it? Tell me more. Because I think prayer, it's sort of the one of the strangest things that you you have to do as a Christian is is sort of talk to this this what you know, what, what the creator of the universe and talking to you, you know, you know, the idea is please change this for me. And it just seems almost bizarre, really, when you think about it. And I think, well, OK, what is prayer then? L- largely, you see Jesus, particularly sort of within, if even, you know, before his, his um, crucifixion, the idea that he said, if you know, I will do this, but if if you just let the pass, you know, the cup pass from me, it's almost like give me the strength and the courage to go through with this mm. rather than to change things. And it is that that to me is the, the nature of, of prayer is the ability to, it should be the courage and the, the strength and the grace to deal with the situation that I'm in rather than to ask for an escape from it. And that, to me, is a far more important way of thinking of prayer than than just changing things. And I struggle with it like anybody does. And I struggle with faith generally. I mean, I people say, do you have any moments of doubt? Well, I have moments of faith. Okay. Because to me, I live in that world of where I have a residual belief but my faith doesn't always resound. My faith. I have moments of intense faith, but I have moments of doubt mm-hmm. as well. I, you know, I feel doubt. I, you know, the more you you look at life, the more you see how, you know, the whole nature of the world, the the universe, the, the way the world has been created, or the simplistic nature of the biblical account is difficult for me to fully understand at all. Nobody does. And, and so, therefore, I can't say, oh, it's, it's easy. It's, yes, for the moment that I was converted, I have no great moments of doubt. I have moments of faith. And I stick with those, and I thank God for them, and I move through life with those moments of faith supporting me. But, it, you know, that, that's just me. I get that. Moments of faith rather than moments of doubt. You're turning it around to be more positive so you remember the yeah. good times. Yeah. But what about being disillusioned? I, I'm not particularly disillusioned. I, not with life. I get disillusioned with things around me that everybody does. Yeah. Get disillusioned with politics. You know, I get disillusioned with the institutions. I get in, uh, disillusioned with those sort of superstructures. But I'm not disillusioned with life generally. Uh, it's up to me to get on with it. It's up to me to make a change. It's up to me to to not sit there as a victim but to try and be as resilient as possible with given whatever situation. Well, before we put your CRE hat on, going back to the 70s, when we started to see a bit more freedoms, as, as you were saying, what about being disillusioned with the church you were in or with the church as an institution? Well, of course I was. And and that's the nature of, uh, if you saw the songs that I'd written mm. at that time, you, you would see that kind of underneath it all. But you'd see alongside that, a kind of almost throwing myself on... The, uh, the the existential moments of faith um, where you are revealed, truth is revealed to you, where a devotional aspect comes in and you you cling to those and you rejoice through those. And I do. I, I just think life is multifarious like that. And I've got no problems with having, I think you've got to have a difficulty with things, with institutions. You have to, because otherwise you're going to get exploited. We've talked about the JFK yeah. situation earlier. We've talked about the waspy women have been exploited, in my opinion. So you you have to constantly in your mind be thinking about how you want to change the world, however small your little patch is, 
um, that is being resilient and that is putting your best foot forward to make change. When I say talk about the Christian Resources Exhibition, strengthen your brethren, that idea, it is because I am basically disillusioned with a lot of the culture of church that I'm you know, involved in and that I connected with. And it's therefore the irony is that I almost God gave me a vision. OK, uh, you're disillusioned. Change it. This is your chance to change it. Yeah. Put this show on to show people the better way of doing something. I said, well, I don't really want to. I mean, I really didn't want to take this this exhibition on. A bit, you, you ask anybody around me, my family and friends and even the people I work with, they knew that if I didn't take it on, it would it did actually close down because my wife and I just bought the assets. We simply bought a mailing list and the odd little bit of a cash register and a, a few signposts pointing people to seminars. I mean, we, there was nothing left yeah. bar the basically the database and the name and the goodwill. That was it. And I didn't want that responsibility, but it was a question of saying, okay, you, you know, this is the fulfilment of that commission. Get on with it. I sound rude, please don't take it as that. But if you're doing it for kingdom purposes, why did they have to sell it to you? Why couldn't they just given it to you? Well, that's there for them to say. <laughs> I mean, I have to say to you, it wasn't a huge amount that I paid for. Yes, you're right. But again, without going into detail, I could see that it could still be profitable, that it could still make a living for a certain number of people if it was done more strategically yes. than they had done it. So from a practical point of view, I, uh, I could see a way to do it that perhaps other people couldn't. And that was because I knew it so well and I knew people who could help me. You know, I was from the inside, having worked within the organisation, um, worked for the founder who helped me as well when, when, we, when my wife and I purchased it. And I knew the people who owned it at the time, the Bible Society. So there was an element of expertise that I had and background, but I, I couldn't fill all the bits. I needed expertise in other areas. So we went for it. We've made it profitable. It's never going to make us a huge amount of money, but it's, uh, it's certainly profitable. And we've, we've done our best that we can and, to, to, and maintained our independence. I have to say this to you that is really important because... Yeah. You live in Northern Ireland. I do. And you know how theological divisions there are. No, not at all. <laughs> and we try to re uh, stay above all of that and to say, look, you know, this is something that is for all. This is a broad church. And we, we're proud of that. And so we've, we've taken it on with that in mind. I hear what you're saying. And I think I could be wrong here, but it's like a commitment, I suppose, by whatever it costs, X pounds. That is your commitment because it'd be very easy, I suppose, to say, yeah, I'll take it. It cost me nothing. And then a couple of years later, it, yeah. it goes down the drain. So it's commitment, yeah. isn't it? Well, it is. And it's love of the people that you're working with. I mean, we have some wonderful people, exhibitors, who we're friends with yeah. rather than just just being clients. And uh, the, the family, my whole family are involved in some way in the exhibition. Without them, I would never have you know, taken it on. So... This is an element of the church kind of involved in a commercial context. And we try to run a professional exhibition that is a trade show like any other trade show you might go to in a secular world. That was how it was set up by the founder 40 years ago. And we are celebrating our 40th year now. And he set it up in that professional way. And we try to fulfill that. And we surprise people because, let's be honest, if most of the, you people who are listening to this now will think, oh, I know what we're talking about. It's a jumble sale feel. There's some trestle tables out there and there's a few pop-up banners. And that's what we're talking about. That's how a church show would be. And that is exactly what we are not. We are a professionally run trade show with shell scheme in quality halls that are used by other mainstream shows. We don't do church halls. We, we're trying to up the kind of the whole level. And when people walk in who've never been before, they can't believe what they see. They've got in their mind jumble sale. And we, are, we deliver trade show. Well, I'm looking forward to when the CRE 
sponsors this show so I can get a private jet to fly over to Milton Keynes in October to come and have a look. Yeah. Where's it going to be held this year in Milton Keynes and how much would it cost to get in? Yeah, we're at the Marshall Arena, which is next to the Milton Keynes Don Stadium. Yeah. Beautiful stadium, the MK Don's, uh, 30,000 seater, all seater, beautiful thing. Right next to it is the Marshall Arena, and they're connected, actually, and you can go from one to the other. And the Marshall Arena is, sort of, you think of Marshall Amps. That's where it's based okay. now, Jim Marshall. And there's a, a beautiful exhibition hall there. We're expecting to have around about 180 organisations exhibiting there. And um, it's the first time we've ever done Milton Keynes. And uh, we're hoping for a, a really good exhibition. Brilliant. And a date, please, sir? Yes, 9th and 10th of October. Well, bear that in mind. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, if my private jet is ready, I'll be over straight away. (laughs) Steve, this has been brilliant talking to you. And more importantly, listen to what you've shared. It's been phenomenal. And if people want to get hold of you, how can they do that, sir? They can get hold of me uh, to the the CRE uh, website, which is www.creonline, all one word, creonline.co.uk. If they want to talk to me personally or drop me a line, then again, it's Steve, S-T-E-V-E, at creonline.co.uk. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, I've had a phenomenal time catching up with you. We didn't mention one person who's had a phenomenal part of my life who was courtesy of you, and that was Tony Campolo. Maybe we should do a part two sometime and wax lyrical about all things Tony Campolo. Oh, absolutely. So, Steve Goddard, who is your Christian hero, please? Well, there are a number of people who I could have chosen, but if you're looking at the kind of luminaries, uh, the dead luminaries, if you like, yeah. sounds like a group, that, doesn't it? They were a very good pioneering prog band from the 60s. <laughs> I mean, there's Oswald Chambers, who was a, an amazing guy, a writer, who died uh, during the First World War. And there are uh, speakers who influenced me, but I'm going to go completely the other way around. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say Auntie Betty. Who makes great Yorkshire puds? <laughs> well, my Auntie Betty, you know, they say if your Christianity doesn't work at home, don't export it. I've never heard that expression. Have you never heard no, that? No, it's a brilliant expression. Tell me more on that and then we'll come to Auntie Betty. Yeah. There's an argument about the fact that if it doesn't work at home, your Christianity, don't go telling people about that that you need to get converted to this this faith, this way of life. Because unless it works at home, you're living a lie. Now, we know nobody is perfect, Mm -hmm. but I know of an awful lot of of situations where you've, you know, great preachers uh, and they're most wonderful, honoured men of God. But at home, they are not loved. Mm -hmm. They are not respected. And they have spent their life being adored by the masses, like rock stars, really. Mm -hmm. And their families have got really no time for them. So for me, I've always been aware that if it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't work at home, don't export it. If there's a person listening who actually is exporting it inwardly in his home, it's an absolute mess. Absolutely. Go back and have a big, big rethink about it. And rethink what is happening. I'll be honest with you too. When I was doing music and I was out there doing gigs and it was very seductive lifestyle. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're lauded wherever you go that, you know, you're the main man. They clap you at the end, they buy your album and you're off to the next gig and they love you there and they wine you and dine you sort of thing. And if you're not on the the road, you're in the studio, again, weird hours uh, and you're not part of home very much if you're not careful. And I knew an awful lot of marriages that failed of people who were out there doing gigs at the time, Christian gigs. I'm not just talking mainstream stuff. And that really hit me at the time. What was I prepared to sacrifice to be a star? And, and it was a dividing point where I made a decision. When I was offered the editorship of Buzz magazine, I had to give up the music. And it was a question of making a decision one way or the other. In the end, it was the right decision I made. But you lose something in gaining something. And that was the right decision to make. And I think it was right for my home life. And it was right for my family. And I'm thinking, okay, the most one of the most influential people to me was my auntie Betty, who lived in a council house in Thornton Heath. She was a Pentecostal. She was not an intellect. She was not a great thinker. 
but she welcomed me into her home whenever she never turned me away. And I was friends with her two sons. And they were sort of aged between me, as it were, an older one and younger. And we got on famously. And when my mum was ill and my mum was regularly ill and went into hospital, I would have to spend four or five weeks in her house living with them because we were a large family and my dad couldn't look after us all. So we were farmed out to homes. And Auntie Betty always willingly had me in her small council house in Thornton Heath in Croydon, just down the road from Sellers Park, I might add. And her life, it spoke of Christianity working at home. It spoke of having very little in terms of material goods, but being always loving and being always open and caring. And I would hear her singing in tongues sometimes. Yeah. I didn't know what it was, but that was what Auntie Betty did. I, I could feel a love coming out of her to her family, however much we wrecked the living room playing kind of hand football between the sofas for hours on end with the bottom of these two settees being the goals. You know, when it was raining, we couldn't get out. That's what I mean about uh, a Christianity where I felt loved and I felt at home and I felt that she gave off the radiance, if you like, of what Christianity ought to be. And so for me, I never really thanked her because you – you grow up, don't you? You go, you move on. I never went to a funeral. I never knew, you know, how she died. But in those years that were formative for me, she loved me. Great answer. And was she a true auntie? No, not even an auntie. Really? <laughs> the irony, she was just a friend of my mother's, uh, the family. That's all she was. Wow. Incredible. Let's not wait another 30 years to meet up. Even 20 years. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been phenomenal. Thank you so much, Steve. God bless. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.